Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. Today, Eric is off. He's at spring break, which I presume has something to do with his kids and not with him in a Speedo in Daytona Beach. Uh, but if you wanted one of your Architecture hosts to be in a Speedo, he would definitely be your choice. Instead, I've got a great set of guests today. We're going to go deep on what it means to be a publisher nowadays. So we have my old friend, Matt Goldstein, otherwise known as MSG, and Rich Kakapolo, the CEO of DMG Media. Matt and Rich, thanks for being here. Yeah, it's a great honor uh, to, to speak to you at any time. It's great to be here on your podcast. To follow in the footsteps of some of your previous guests is, is really cool. The, the funny thing about this podcast is literally all the guests know each other. I even saw Matt Barish on the street the other day, and he, was, he gave me a hard time for both not having him on the podcast and also talking about him endlessly. Uh, so, hey, Matt, we're, we're name-checking you again. Uh, so let's talk with Matt Goldstein. So you are a veteran of ad tech, of publishing, and a lot of people probably know you from your interesting, quirky newsletter, uh, which is called What I Saw Happen. Tell us about what I saw happen and who reads it, what's it about, and and uh, how you got started doing it. It all started eight years ago when I was working for consulting. I've been doing that for 13 and a half years, working for PulsePoint. And I actually went back in, in Gmail and found the newsletter, and I sent it out to the 10 executives who work there. And it was basically 10 bullet points from Q3 2015. And I reread those 10 bullet points, and I'm kind of embarrassed how bad they are. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I, could, I have them right here in front of me. It's like, viewability, publishers try to get smarter about indirect CPM, native continues to thrive. It's like, it's like embarrassingly bad. Just because it's obvious doesn't mean it's not true. Oh, I know. And then, and then I found one from a year later, and I started breaking it out. Here's Facebook and Google. Here's the marketers. Here's publishers, and here's other stuff. And fast forward to today, it's now, as Rich knows, it's like a 12, 13-page missive that people have to print out. It's so long or put to the sides to read. <laughs> and it's funny because I never write that much, but I feel like there's so much happening in the quarter that I have to put that much down. It's like if instead of tweeting, if, if instead of following me on Twitter, like once a quarter, I just sent you a PDF of all of my tweets that I would have sent during the quarter. Well, and it's funny, Ari, because you asked me one time about why don't I tweet? And I'm like, I don't tweet because I do it this way. So you and I do the extreme different ways, right? <laughs> You're putting something out every 10 minutes. And by the way, I'm looking at the news every day, dropping stuff in here, editing it. And then when the 75th day of the quarter, when it starts to come to the end, I sort of go through it. I sort of edit it and sort of take stuff out. And then this time around, I had a blast because I started dropping everything into ChatGPT and Bard. As Rich knows, I like Bard better <laughs> these days. And I got to tell you, Ari, it changed everything for me. How so? Oh, the summaries it allowed me to get were unbelievable. My first section is always publishers, and I had 40 or 50 bullet points to the publishers, and I was trying to figure out how do I put these into different buckets. So after a couple different prompts on Bard and ChatGPT, it broke it down into five different categories. I consolidated it to four, and I broke all my publisher stuff into four different categories. Wow. That's great. I mean, I think we'll talk more about the effect of AI on publishing, but it's cool that you're a, you're a case study right there. It's cool he picked, he's, I don't know if you caught this, it's an exclusive. He was a, he's more of a Google Bard fan than a ChatGPT fan. 
it's VHS and Betamax all over again. Oh yeah, yeah, I didn't catch that. So you got access to Bard earlier on the on the privilege list. Yes, and then I actually want to change my name from MSG to uh, Chat MSG or GPT or GPT MSG. I'm trying to figure out which one. <laughs> Riff, do you read the MSG newsletter? Uh, our family gathers around, and then uh, we read it together. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well, I I see versions of it, you know, during the quarter, and uh, I, I. But when it comes out, yeah, of course, of course, I read it. It's uh, it's mandatory reading here at the Daily Mail, and um, you know, quarter is an interesting uh, length of time. I talked to MSG quite a bit. You and I am surprised by things that he lists out there that I didn't catch or that I forgot happened you know, earlier in the quarter. So I, I think the readership in MSG, you could say, is, is expands with each one because people send it around. Yeah, so, so there's a couple things about this, Ari and Ritual of this. So one of the questions you asked me, Ari, is who is the audience? And yeah. every time I write this, I write it for one person in mind, which happens to be Rich. Like he is the epitome <laughs> of, I'm being serious, he is the pity. So you're going to say what? <laughs> it depending about my audience. Number one. Number two is I send it out to, I think it's up to like 3,200 people every quarter. Wow. I get a 50 or 60% open rate sometimes. I'll send it out once on a Monday or Tuesday, get 12, 13, 14, 1,500 opens. Then I send it again on Saturday morning at 7 a.m., get another 300 for the people who didn't want to read it during the week. The thing that drives me crazy is when people unsubscribe. I get four. <laughs> You're laughing. I get four or five unsubscribes every quarter. I'm like, why are you unsubscribing to this? I only sent it out four <laughs> times a year. The answer takes you to unsubscribe. It's such a thing. Yes. It's so true. Like, you know, with Marketecture, I, I we use MailChimp. So every day I get a little email from MailChimp, new subscribers, unsubscribers. And I really hold a grudge against someone who unsubscribes for my... So, so do I. <laughs> I'm going to see them at a conference and be like, you unsubscribe. You. Oh, did you? I'm, sometimes I want to put them back in. <laughs> How does one subscribe? I thought it's like an exclusive list. You just have to know you to subscribe, right? Is there a web page? I, I, I had a website called whatisawhappen.com. I don't update it all the time, but in there you can actually... Okay. Okay. Good plug. Um, one of the things I really uh, like about it, uh, the newsletter, is that it just sort of brings to the surface trends. I mean, that's the title, What I Saw Happen. And it makes you think. Like, some some things are obvious. Some things like, yeah, no duh, that's happening. Uh, and other things like, oh, okay, I didn't know that was happening. I think we're just going to jump in. What we plan to do is I'm going to go through some of the bullet points in your last newsletter, and we'll do some hot takes about what we're seeing here. Before we go, Ari, one more thing. I hate MailChimp. I think the service is horrible. It has okay. the worst stats ever. I pay $80 a month for it to send something out four times a year. After this meeting, I'm going to cancel mine, take my list and upgrade it, to move it over to you, and I'll, I'll give you like 20 bucks a month. <laughs> I um okay uh you know I use Mailchimp I use SendGrid I use a lot of things it's amazing that in 2023 there's not a single email program that does everything you need as a business but that's a different conversation so let's jump into the hot takes publishers are concerned that traffic continues to decrease often due to Google algorithm changes Matt why don't you start by explaining what you're seeing and then maybe Richie give us our uh, your point of view I saw this happen more this quarter than other quarters, certain publishers I'm working with have seen traffic go down as of, as of late. And there's a lot of concern slash finger pointing that Google always does something new, SEO changes, and the traffic goes down and the publishers feel handcuffed. Yeah. 
It didn't meta a big part of that, though. Is it really Google or is it Google, meta, Twitter, everyone? Oh, I think it's mostly Google. I'd ask Rich what he thinks. We're very fortunate that most of our traffic comes direct. Uh, so Google's important and obviously Meta's important, but we can have a good day with Google, a bad day with Google. We're really more concerned of the direct traffic because those people who come direct to the homepage or open up the app see significantly more pages per visit, you know, than a Google visit at 1.2 or Meta visit at 1.4, or vice versa, of pages per visit, you know. All every quarter, or you know, a couple times, big uh, once a year, there the algorithm changes. Google rolls out, and you know, everyone holds breath and wonders whether or not they're going to get hit. There's really not a lot of understanding as to what's you know what what the goal of it is, and uh, you know, the SEO guys meet up at the bars that SEO guys go to or whatever, and they try to compare <laughs> just a, those are fun bars, and they try to find out you know, or they try to read the tea leaves. What happened? The SEO guys go to a bar that's called Bar Tavern, Sports Bar, Cool Place, Local Place. Yeah, it's dark. And uh, <laughs> sorry, that was an old RCO joke. Uh, um, so they, yeah, so you know, it's it's people. It, some sites that are very dependent on it, you know, live, you know, really can get get killed by it. it's. Um, and then there, the, I think the difficult part is real. Not there's no way to really lobby especially for smaller sites to say to google hey we really got hurt what happened yeah you know that was something that um when the australian regulators uh, you know came they started discussing facebook and google and they put forth their first draft of regulation um there was a pay for content was part of it but a um there were some uh, rules for behavior, some uh, operating uh, guidelines in there too. And one of those was, uh, you know, to give more insight into algorithm changes and to give a platform or a way for people to to question when they had gotten hit. That was sort of wadded out in the final version. And I think also Rich made a great point that Google flyby traffic sort of sees 1.1, 1.2 pages per visit. Right. And that's not a way for publishers to build websites long term. I think it's a way to introduce your brand to people, and hopefully uh, they they find you. And for us, if if people find an article, and then they go back, get to the homepage, they'll come back uh, directly to the homepage, and they'll become a dedicated or a um, an addicted user. So, you know, I think of Google more as a um, as a way to introduce the the brand to more to more readers. So, I, I think it's a really important moment in time, and perhaps it'll be covered more in next quarters uh, edition, but. You know, Facebook's been saying for a long time that, uh, you know, they're, they're getting out of the news business. They don't want news. They don't want to, they won't promote news. They can't moderate it. They're tired of being blamed for it. And it's really happening. They, right. The news stories are not getting promoted. That doesn't have legs. They don't have the legs they used to have. They're, you know, they'll, they'll run with sports. They'll run with, you know, lifestyle. They'll run with beauty, whatever. Anything that's close to news, you know, Kanye is not going to get, you know, stories about Kanye are, are not entertainment, they're news. And they're really adamant about it. And I think the move away from uh, the shutting down of Instant Article this this month is just a further sign that uh, they don't want to use the, the the platform or the templates that were optimized uh, for news. So Yeah. It's, and it's like it's, it's a, like a perfect storm, right? You know, between Google's algorithm changes, Meta not being interested in news, Twitter being chaotic. And new platforms like TikTok really not having a click-out model at all. Yeah, Instagram too. While we're on the subject, let's let's go to a subject that's not on the list, uh, which is um, should news publishers be paid by ChatGPT and Bard uh, for Ow. scraping their content? 
absolutely 100%. They should have been paid 20 years ago by Google when Google scraped their content for search. 100% should be paid. Okay, well, that's two different things. Uh, I agree with the first part, disagree with the second part. <laughs> Rich, what do you think? I think, I think it's going to happen. The, both the training of the AI engines on the, the, the content and then the you know, presenting aspects of the you know, parts of the content. Could Again, you... if you're dependent on search, it's really going to hurt because the answer is going to be provided in the response. Not, there's not going to be a 10 you know, links out. If search shifted to AI, and let's say publishers were paid to be part of the index the AI uses, but they got far fewer clicks, would that be okay, or or it kind of depends on the dollars and cents? Yeah, it depends on the dollars and cents, and it depends on what you, the value of, of exclusive content. I think right. the, the ramifications of what can be done with it, and I know we're, we're moving off of the, or the original question, but depending on the model, it, it can work, depending on how dependent a, a publisher is on search. And it goes back to my point before. If you think of search as a way to introduce your brand and your your content to new users, that's the piece that's, that's going to be lost here. And that's the one yeah. that's going to be hard. It's not a straight page view to page view, you know, comparison. It's a, it's a, a user who becomes a returning user who becomes a, a dedicated and addicted. All right. Next hot take from Matt's newsletter. Uh, publishers need Apple to build a third-party ad network since ATT killed uh, the ads and the iOS business. You're hearing from publishers, Matt, that they need Apple to create a third-party app? Need, want, would be great. And it's not a an app as much as it's they need Apple to get involved with advertising so the publishers can garner a higher CPM from those users on the iOS platform. Right. Because basically CPMs are down and maybe continuing to go down because the ad model is broken. As, as iOS takes 50, 60, 70% of the impressions across yeah. the publisher. So they need Apple to sort of somehow identify these people again and figure out how to monetize them slightly. Assuming they have a fair revenue share, which we don't know. Well, well, you know what the revenue share is going to be, Ari? It's going to be 30%, right? Yeah. Their, 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 take, <laughs> their take rate will be 30%. That's obvious. Yeah. And Eric was, when uh, I think in, in one of your previous episodes, Eric was, uh, he's, he's really in the most knowledgeable and insightful uh, guy on this. I thought was, he was excellent. Eric's a super, he knows more about in-app advertising, he's forgotten more than I would ever know. But I, I do think it would come. And I think, you know, the problem is that the, the content rate with HTT is, is just so low. You know, and it's much, much worse than GDPR. And um, it, it's hurt a lot of businesses. It's hurt, it's hurt us. It's hurt, obviously, Facebook and Snap and others. And, you know, if Google came out with, I'm sorry, if uh, Apple came out with something, I think it's going to work like privacy sandbox probably i think they will mm -hmm. come out with it and when they do we'll grit our teeth we'll and they'll look like the white knights and we'll all say <laughs> thanks and thank you, you very know, much probably thanks uh, yeah yeah thanks uh, for helping us out yeah all right uh publishers are worried about ssps i.e the emx yahoo news is a blip of more consolidation to come we've talked about this on the podcast previously uh but i'm really interested in hearing how publishers think about it is it just about potentially getting stiffed or on a bill or having a clawback on a payment? Or is there more to it than that? Well, that's part of it. I think during tough times, you got to be really careful with it. You got to watch as a publisher. You got to watch your receivables and you got to check your contracts and make sure you understand what could happen, what your exposure is. Don't let it get too far, you know, outside the bounds of what um, you have in your agreements. I think it's a tough time for SSPs. 
they get stretched out. They're in a very tough spot. They get stretched out. They really have to be like banks with the, the cash flow. So yeah. they've been through it. They, I have a lot of faith in them. I, I think it's the concern is too that they're dealing with DSPs that may be struggling. And then there are some, you know, but if they don't get paid, depending on yeah. the, the SSP, there may be some clawbacks there. So. Yeah, DSP going under would a big DSP going under would be really pretty terrible. Um, but it's not; it's never really happened or hasn't happened for a long time. The EMX question is like, where did the money go? Uh, that, you know, the EMX just seems to have lost all of its money that it owed publishers, but it's not clear why. I, I don't understand exactly what happened there. Uh, but maybe someday we'll we'll have the full story. I'm just going to move on. I want to hit these fast. So maybe, uh, Matt, you can talk about this one. Publishers are really figuring out vertical video and how to make money from the content. Currently, it's difficult because there's not much programmatic ad demand. This is a sexy topic. Uh, what, what are you hearing? So, you know, vertical video is controlled by TikTok and the other big players. Yep. Eventually, I think publishers are going to try to figure out how to get verbal video on their mobile users. And is there a way for a third party to come in and grab some, create vertical, vertical video, have content come in there, and then feed it through publishers as opposed to going through TikTok? Is there white space out there in the ecosystem that publishers and ad tech-friendly companies could figure out to compete against TikTok and those? Right. So are they doing anything? I, I mean, I see. I, I've heard the Washington Post. I've heard bits and pieces of it happening. And, you know, Part of the reason I write this newsletter is get people to think about things and actually, yeah. you know, having, you know, CEOs take the newsletter and talk with their, with their, you know, uh, senior management team about what I write here. It's like, this is how you think about new ideas. Like, let's learn from the previous quarter to think about what's going to happen in the future. I, I know when I was at Beeswax, we talked to Google about vertical video coming through programmatic pipes. And it was really, it was a couple of years ago and there was just no demand or supply. Um, so I don't know how that's changed, but it, it's definitely an issue. But there's, yeah, well, again, there's white space here. There, yeah, but I think the vertical video is is a result is is more the symptom. The the change is the short form video. Uh-huh. The change is the the move to that's changed. It's changed everything. Is is just how popular the short form video has become. So everyone's had to change what they produce. To work that way, there's debates internally. Can you chop something up, or do you have to make it specifically for that platform or that's or that um, you know, that that length of time? You can't shoot a three minute video and, and cut it down to short form. There are all those sort of questions, all that sort of testing going on. As far as uh, running ads through it, it's hard to put an ad before something that's so short. And sooner or later, I guess the question will come down to attribution, right? How do you, if there are three videos, and then there's an ad, who gets you know attribution or some ref share on that? Yeah, I think the the ad before the short video problem has been around since the early days of YouTube, and yep. you know, has it's not really a solvable problem. It's it's a it's just a problem. So I think that publishers need to think about potentially non advertising ways of dealing with that, or you know, or sponsored uh, or, or sponsors. Yeah, sponsors. Yeah. Okay. So next point: publishers are trying to capture more email addresses and use it to increase revenue, but they're not sure it will materialize into revenue. And it would potentially replace third-party cookies. So this makes sense. Uh, this is one of those evergreen things. I think publishers have been trying to capture email addresses for 20 years. Um, but with the impending loss of cookies and with the trade desk talking about UID2 all the time, it seems like it's a priority. So what are they actually doing? Has anything changed? This is a broader question around identity. What identity solution? What are you going to need to play in that You know, in that game? I'm not so sure it's going to be email. We, you know, Everyone has an opinion on this. 
But if you want to collect email, if you think email is the thing, and with proxy emails and all that happening, who knows if it's the thing? But if, if that's what you want to do, interestingly, now when yields are so low, the opportunity cost is probably you know not as high as it once was to take that chance and put up a hurdle or or mm-hmm. or you know make that request. In the end, it comes down to the same thing as you said. It's been for twenty years. Is the value exchange right? If people are going to unsubscribe from MSG's newsletter, which with all of its value, then you know what hope do we have? But uh, no, it's it's. <laughs> I think now you're st- you know you're starting to see it. But I mean, where do you get it? I mean, we get uh, the emails. We get mainly from uh, people who join um, uh, to take part in the community. And if you have a strong community and people want to, you know, comment or be engaged with it, I think that's a, the best place to, to get it. Yeah. I mean, you look at some successes like Semaphore, uh, which is, you know, very email centric and seems to have done quite a good job getting people to subscribe right off the bat. Or the New York Times with their, you know, vertical approach where they have a, you know, a cooking newsletter versus a, you know, finest newsletter, et cetera. Um, There's definitely some opportunity to innovate here. And as I said, the the opportunity cost is probably lower. You know, it's, it's definitely lower as yields go away. That losing a page view or cutting short a visit. You know, it doesn't have the cost that it did a little while ago. So, oh, Ari, did you just say the success of Semaphore? Yeah, success at Semaphore in, in driving email subscriptions. Okay. It seems like the, I don't know how they are successful as a company, yeah, um, which actually uh, that that is a great segue into your next bullet. So you really threw down the gauntlet on this one. I, I had to I had to throw down some gauntlet right, and make it more interesting. I'm going to I'm going to read this verbatim. I am not sure we will see another successful digital publisher emerge in the next three to five years. I well, if I look at the point above, I think there's only been two really successful digital publishers in the last three to five years, and that's Axios and Forbes Marketplace, what my friend okay. Asher did over there. Now, I'm sure I forgot something or missing something. I don't know if Ari, you know any other successful digital publisher that emerged over the past couple of years? Uh, Marketector TV, maybe. Okay. <laughs> but but my point is, there's not many, and I think with everything happening with AI, I don't think you'll see a successful one emerge until AI creates something interesting and changes the way. So you won't see a successful traditional digital publisher emerge, but you might see a successful AI-driven initiative of publishing emerge in the next couple of years. I was going to bridge to that topic as well. I I think having AI to help the editorial process, to write your run-of-the-mill articles, that's going to happen, but it's not really interesting. I mean, it's really just a way of reducing costs uh, to produce content. But the next step of, you know, something u- new and unique that's truly AI-driven but still has editorial, I-, I think that's where you could see some real innovation and some disruption, frankly, where people can get their news or get their recipes or get their health advice in a totally different way than what they're doing now with uh, the traditional content model. Yeah, I think of it in three ways. Yes, there's there's opportunities around efficiency, right, and and um, how content's created or summarized, or even what keywords or or best keywords are selected for meta tagging, whatever. There will be efficiency options. And the next topic is one we talked about before: is there a licensing opportunity, or will there be licensing uh, mm-hmm. for the engines from the engines? That's the second, and the third is the one that you just discussed, which is are there new products. And I, you know, are there new products that will come about that will change the way people interact with content? And I think you're starting to see that a bit with some of the conversation engines. You know, um, I think you'll see that from Meta with 
uh, Messenger or uh, with uh, DMs where there'll be conversations between the reader or in this case the you know the the customer and the, and the content. So the products changes that'll come about like that. Yeah, absolutely, and that is interesting. And so they're there. So people will, as far as MSG is coming, somebody could come out that's really great at that and and change the game. Okay, so let's transition to the news of the week. Uh, so Matt is the news of the quarter. Uh, we'll, we're going to... All right, I do have to say, though, your four stories here for new, your news of the week never really make my news of the quarter. So, like, we're going down two different paths, which is fascinating. Me, probably more from the publisher's perspective, and you more from the ad tech perspective. Yeah, I'm like Scotty in the engine room, you know, trying to uh, trying to make the ad serve on time, and you're Captain Kirk trying to talk to the aliens. So uh, with that terrible metaphor, let's jump in. Uh, all right. So uh, starting with the ongoing conversation we've had several weeks in a row here on this podcast about DSPs and SSPs colliding, there was a story this week uh, in Digiday about Magnite going direct. Um, so Magnite apparently is talking to advertisers and agencies about booking their programmatic guarantee deals and otherwise having their demand in Magnite and potentially either skip bypassing the DSP or sort of enhancing the relationship between Magnite and the advertisers. Is this big news or is this just continuing a trend that's going to be in the news for the next couple of years? It's a continuation of a trend that's been happening for years. If you look at the top DSPs, right, Google DB360 has a DSP and an SSP. The Trade Desk has been doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. Criteo has been doing it. Amazon has been doing it. They're all doing it. I think it's just being amplified the news slightly here. And it's like it took them long enough to do it. The question, is, the question is, does Magnet and Pubnatic and Index, do they go and buy and or start a DSP? And I remember Ari used to say, like, oh, if I had more money, I would just start five more DSPs. And there's your five people you sell them to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the, I think there's two different sort of things going on here. One is that uh, there's this conflict over take rates between uh, the, the trade desk has sort of started this war over take rates with their open path. And the second thing is that because there is a quickly growing segment of the market that is uh, using programmatic guaranteed, which in case you're not that involved in the day to day, programmatic guaranteed means every single impression that comes through to the DSP needs to be purchased at a pre-negotiated price. And when you're doing that, the DSP doesn't really do very much. Uh, the DSP acts like a dumb ad server, frankly. And the obvious question that comes to mind is, why am I paying a percentage of media for a, a tech that's not really doing very much? And so I think Programmatic Guaranteed has raised a lot of people's eyebrows about whether the game changes between DSPs, SSPs, publishers, and advertisers. So that, that's my quick take right. on this. Right. I think this has been happening for a while, but I think Open Path is a game changer. It's a shot yeah. across the bow for some of the SSPs who must be feeling some pressure. But this is really a, a big step in just disintermediating exchanges. Even if Open Path's not running all the trade desk spend, it shows the intentions. Rich, are you in Open Path? No. Why not? I don't, don't want to say. You <laughs> <laughs> will. I think it's this has been going and since you know, the move to first price auction. That that was a big step to, the, that sort of changed the game for SSPs. This is coming that way too, and uh, they took kind of put more pressure on the SSPs to create true value and justify their their take rate. 
I think with the, some of the sustainability efforts with Brian's doing the scope three and, and just with um, with SPO, with the supply path optimization, there's a lot going on there, a lot of changes that are happening. And um, that goes back to your point before, you just got to keep an eye on and work with uh, your partners. Um, who, you know, I feel great fondest for and the RSSP partners and they've helped us over the years. I've always thought their intentions were, you know, uh, the, the, you know, people like Index, Andrew and, and those guys. I, I think they help. I, I also yeah. don't know what happens to the smaller guys, uh, you know, the smaller publishers. They have to have SSPs because the DSP has yeah. to do those relationships with all this long, long tail. So it's important for all of us that the SSPs are healthy. Yeah. Uh, which brings us to our next uh, interesting topic. So, uh, my friend Tom Tuscari uh, runs a newsletter called uh, Quo Vadis. Uh, I don't know what that means. Tom is a very intellectual person. He probably has a long, interesting story about why it's called that. And he writes these very dense, intensely mathematical posts about ad tech. I'd recommend yes. subscribing. We might have him on the podcast at some point, um, but he's too smart. It'll make me look bad. So anyway. The point being, this this week's F issue got me thinking because what he did was he tried to derive the take rates of Magnite and Pubmatic using their financial statements. Take rate um, is often confused with gross margin in our business, but take rate is a much better way to describe it. It's the percentage of every dollar that goes through the pipes of these systems that is kept by the SSP. And take rates have not been disclosed for Magnite and Pubmatic for quite some time. Uh, Magnite uh, um, very publicly reduced its take rate over the last five years um, as they removed extra hidden fees and things like that. Long story short, so Tom estimates the take rate of these companies using publicly available information, and he comes up with a range for Magnite of 16 to 22 percent and a range for Pubmatic of 22 to 30 percent. And you can read the methodology he used. Methodology makes a lot of sense. These numbers come in a little higher than what I would think. Okay, so here's my hot take. Number one, I had to read his miss of three times before I understood it. So this... <laughs> Number two, I dropped it into Bard, and Bard told me the summary was Pupmatic and Bagnet are going to merge. And number, okay. three, and number three is his numbers feel right. You know what those take rates are. And my philosophy on take rates, if you're Pupmatic or Rubicon... You know, my take rate is going to be as high as I can make it until someone slaps me on the hand and says you're doing a bad job, right? So take advantage of it. And I do think, and Rich and I were talking about this before, I do think that the analysts who follow these companies should make the companies disclose take rate in the financial statements as opposed to someone trying to drive it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, didn't this, I think this really, it's interesting that we go back to when Rubicon went flick and I think they had to disclose it then or it was in their book, you know, when they were doing the roadshow and. I think everyone was shocked with how, how much they would take from both sides. So that's when I think people really started paying attention to it. And um, it's gotten hidden more over the years. Although, as he notes in here, they have, and you, you mentioned, I think they have uh, been talking about uh, bringing it down since they've, through some, when they've done some of these acquisitions, they've, they've right. been a little bit more open about it. Uh, it's the age-old question of how much does the publisher get out of every dollar? And, but it's yeah. but it's not as bad as rocket fuels take rate of sixty three percent back. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I think the Magnite number seems a little low to me, uh, partially because they have a a hybrid business where they do manage service through uh, yeah. SpotX acquisition. It's it's interesting that he put he put numbers on the piece of paper to get us talking. 
because we forget about it. I think most publishers don't, you know, day to day, they don't, they don't really think about it. They look at, you know, they, they try to compare against the benchmarks, but they're looking at their net, you know, it's yeah. periodically, you know, they look at the net and they, they wonder why it's going down or why it's up or why one partner seems to be doing better and then, than others. And that's what I think publishers talk about. They don't, it's only when there's so things like this come out periodically that we're reminded again, hey, we're only getting 25 mm-hmm. cents on the dollar. Yeah, I mean, last week we talked about how Sovereign announced they had a 0% take rate because they, they charge publishers for other things. It just gets you kind of thinking, like, what if Google, you know, doubled or tripled the price of GAM but made addicts free? That would that would be an interesting SBO move, right? It'd be very, very interesting to see what would happen if, if someone tried. Maybe not Google's not the right person to try it. Maybe smart is, but it's worth a little creativity yeah. in these complex world. All right. Next, Lou Pascalis, who I think we all know, a uh, longtime advertising leader. He got uh, he was publicly involved in several contentious conversations with uh, Twitter's new management team, if you want to call it that. Anyway, uh, Lou got a new job that I thought was noteworthy, which is he's the chief strategy officer at AdFontis Media, which I haven't really heard of. Uh, but AdFontis is a company that helps brands feel more confident advertising with news publishers. So effectively trying to reverse the trend of advertisers avoiding hard news or using some of the verification vendors to block hard news, trying to get more money flowing to legitimate news outlets. So uh, so I think that's interesting. Maybe more interesting about the company than necessarily lose move, but I thought it was worth talking about. Uh, have either of you run into AdFontas Media before? Yeah, because the media bias chart, the little upside down U that I, I love looking at that all the time about positioning all news publications where they're on the chart. And I yeah. realize those two are related. Yeah. Oh, so Ad Fontes is one who puts out that chart? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. That's, yeah. that's, that, that gives good perspective. Right. It's got, yeah, it's got two, two axes, right? It's got the political bias is the uh, X axis and then oh, the overall quality uh, as defined as original reporting or opinion or analysis, that's their y-axis. Well, and if you think about it, you know, I think in the article, already there's like 60 analysts who work for the media bias chart and put it together, looking at articles. Like, AI feels like it could do that pretty soon, very easily, and make that a whole lot more efficient. (laughs) Yeah, that's the truth. Get AI to rank the news that we should be buying ads on. Um, well, I could probably write a prompt right now and figure that out. It's not that bad. <laughs> Rich, how does this affect your day-to-day business, advertisers avoiding hard news? Is this a real? Is this like a yeah, sure. top five problems that you have? It, it is. It comes around particularly during you know, certain uh, events, right? During COVID, it was more of a UK thing. There was a, a real move away from you know, blacklisting or, or keyword blocking on uh, on anything having with COVID. And um, that actually went to uh, the parliament. You know, there was discussion and the, uh, with the agencies and with the, the tech platforms and with um, the advertisers say, you've got to support news. Uh, it's important uh, for democracy, et cetera. But I think the interesting thing uh, here is uh, that, again, we forget, and I've been in the business long enough to remember, is this really what is going on or, or is this really... A sort of a red herring because 20 years ago, you know, I, I think many advertisers started buying the user and uh, not the, uh, you know, not the the, the site. I mean, I mean, you go back to Dakota and Aminet and you know tracking users, or trying to target users. So, yeah, I think that who a user is has and uh, maybe less than the context. I think that's still true. That may change. I think Amazon's trying 
change it. I think uh, really going back to context a bit. It's an issue, especially in big news events, when they don't want to buy news. That's why, you know, as a publisher, I think it's important to have a wide um, a breadth of content. You know, if you yeah. want to buy hard news, you know, we've got sports, we've got lifestyle, we've got travel and things like that. And we can find, you know, the readers you want to read in those other areas if that's something that's concerning to you. But at the end of the day, we really do think it's important that advertisers support hard news. And that means advertising on those pages. It, look, you don't want to be out plane crash, but we understand that. And we can, you know, move it around, but um, it's important that uh, news is supported. And um, it big events, it, it comes back up. And if I could give a plug, we just did at Marketector TV an uh, in-depth interview with Mark Zagorski, CEO of Double Verify. He had, he had thoughts about this. I thought it was a very informative interview. Also a plug, next week, I believe we're publishing an interview I just did with Dr. Mark Gerther, the head of Uber Advertising, uh, he goes into a lot of depth about what Uber is doing in advertising and how they're planning on opening it up to programmatic and a lot of other really interesting subjects. So I would highly recommend subscribing to our newsletter at Marketector TV and hearing about the latest interviews we do. On that, I think we're going to close it up. So Richard, Matt, thank you so much for being here. This is a great conversation about publishers and about all the challenges they're facing. I hope everyone uh, reaches out to Matt and gets on this secret newsletter that you can't subscribe to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for being here, Matt and Richard. Bye, sorry. Thanks, sorry. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.